0: Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Congregation did a good job with that last song, Russell. I'd like to have a thousand people singing that this morning. That was a good song. Matthew chapter 5, our portion today, and for the next ten Sundays should the Lord tarry. Matthew 5, 1 to 16. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice! And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, neither do men light a candle, put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in Heavenly Father, it is our blessed privilege beginning today and for a number of weeks ahead to consider uniquely the message of the Lord Jesus Christ as preached on earth in a given moment of time. There is no doubt that your Son, our Savior, is the greatest preacher. There is no doubt that what the Lord preached on this occasion was the greatest of all sermons. And we pray that as we begin to study it together this morning, that the Spirit of God would be our teacher, that we would find our hearts and minds captured for thy purposes, and that we as your people would be blessed, and if there be one or two among us, who is yet unsure of their relationship with you through Christ, then may today be the day of their salvation. We ask for your blessing upon this opportunity as we begin a profound and awesome task in preaching our way through that which is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. Help us then, and for that we'll praise you. In Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, amen. Then number four, proceeds the number five duh the truth of Matthew chapter 4 is essential to our understanding as precedent to Matthew chapter 5 you have in Matthew 4:17 a moment in time as Jesus begins to preach saying, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We are beginning this morning our 10-week study of the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And we do so with a grammatical observation that is uniquely available to us this morning, uh, most of us at least, because of the selection of a public reading and preaching text. What did I just say? I just said that sometimes when you make some effort to cause the congregation to be in the zone of scriptures shared by way of public emphasis, you can see things that you can't see when you don't have the same translation. And there's nothing wrong with other translations. But I'm just saying that for public use, sometimes you get to see things if, in fact, you share a common text, and most of us today have at common text in our hands, and I simply want to make with you and for you a obvious grammatical connection uh, in the public preaching teaching text that this church has selected because it yields to us insight that is not quite so easy uh, in other uh, places and in other translations of the biblical text. You have, in 417, a clear indication of what Jesus began to do, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then, as you recognize that the Lord's call for repentance is ushered in light of the promised Jewish kingdom opportunity, which was in that moment at hand, then you're able to let your eyes follow with me this morning a grammatical connection to verse 17 that is profound as to our understanding of that which is called commonly the Sermon on the Mount. What am I talking about? Well, let's get after it. Verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 18, and. Verse 19, and. Verse 20, and. Verse 21, and. Verse 22, and. Verse 23, and. Verse 24, and. Verse 25, and. Chapter 5, verse 1, and. Chapter 5, verse 2, and. Chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor. The writer, regardless of the translation you carry, the writer clearly indicates that the thing that took place in 4.17 is directly connected to the thing that's taking place in 5. Namely, the idea of Jesus preaching repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is directly related to the Sermon on the Mount. That understanding is a profound thing to get your mind around. Our simple point is this. The so-called Sermon on the Mount is directly connected to the preaching emphasis of Jesus, the Christ, or the Messiah, a promise and prophecy. As such, the sermon has to be connected to the overriding preaching theme of repentance. What was Jesus preaching? Repent. What does repentance look like? It looks like this. Matthew chapter 5. The sermon must be understood then as the preaching manifesto, the kingdom manifesto of the Messiah. We're going to use the term messianic manifesto. We're going to use the term messianic manifesto, at least for these ten weeks in which we cover the introduction to the sermon to characterize this longest recorded communication from the lips of our Lord in the whole of the New Testament Scripture. We have no serious objection with the common title, Sermon on the Mount, although it really is not by definition a sermon, nor was it preached from a mountaintop. The Greek root word translated mountain, verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, simply means, the word simply means a rise or upward slope. And the same exact word is found in verse 14 and translated hill. And so don't get the idea of Everest, because the same word is used for a hilltop and a mountaintop. And you are expected to utilize the context of that which is being given to you by way of information as to determine as to whether you and I might call it a hill or whether you and I might call it a mountain. I would suggest that you and I, uh, looking at it, if we were there today uh, near the Galilee, you and I today uh, would likely call it a hilltop, not a mountaintop, but nonetheless... Uh, the word is clear, and, uh, and uh, we will follow uh, this instruction to be sure. Just note the fact that chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 are uh, uh, even in my red letter Bible uh, in black print, meaning that that's all that Jesus didn't say in this, this particular section of the word of God. All chapter 5 read, all chapter 6 read, all chapter 7 read until verses 28 and 29. And so you have, in Matthew 5, 6, 7, uh, you have the longest red the letter uh, expression of the Lord Jesus in all of the New Testament. Now, I've already told you we're taking 10 weeks for the uh, introduction. I suppose somebody will want to know, how long, Pastor, are you going to take to preach the Sermon on the Mount? And I'll tell you honestly, I have no clue. <laughs> I don't see an end to it at this point, so just hang on for a long ride. If the Lord tarries, we're going to be after it a while. Nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, this idea of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount uh, is, is just an important thing to, to look at as it relates to its entitlement. That obviously doesn't come from the Scripture. That's just a man's idea of what's happening here. Uh, I, I, I don't like the word sermon here so much. Uh, because uh, a sermon is defined as, quote, a discourse for the purpose of religious instruction. And so then that sends me off in my dictionary to look up the word religion, and uh, a religion is a set of beliefs concerning the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe. And I don't believe that's what's happening here. Uh, Jesus is not giving a set of religious beliefs. Not in this sermon. And Jesus is not not giving here uh, the aspect of an indication of anything but that which is absolutely authoritative right out of heaven. Uh, We know this communication was much more than just the offering of a set of, uh, of religious beliefs. We know that this sermon was indeed a revelation of God's own righteousness. And we will promote and characterize the communication of Matthew chapter five not under the title "Sermon on the Mount," as it is in the bookstore, but under our entitlement of messianic manifesto, because clearly, it, clearly, it is the Messiah, the Christ, who is preaching and teaching this thing. And when they, we use the word manifesto, it has the idea of the single thing that. Uh, an element of emphasis is all about. And that single thing, that single thing would be the righteousness of God. That single thing would be the righteousness of God. And so you have in uh, in this expression of the Lord two great thoughts. Repent, kingdom opportunity, God is righteous. And so the idea of repentance and righteousness, repent because God is righteous, repent because God demands righteousness, that really becomes the thrust of this extended preaching, teaching opportunity of the Lord Jesus on the hilltop. We will spend the remainder of Sundays in 2022 and the first month of Sundays in 2023 in just these first 16 verses. Again, comprising, as it were, the introduction to the Messianic Manifesto. This morning, I call your attention to the non-red-letter sections of the chapters. 5, 1, and 2, 7, 28, 29. And really, I have very little to say about seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, and 29 except a brief comment. But nonetheless, 5, 1, and 2 is really the heart of where we're going to be camping this morning. It's the non-red-letter section and it says simply this, and seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed. I call your attention to the word seeing, 5 1. I call your attention to the word set, 5 1. I call your attention to the word saying, 5 2. You then have the outline for this morning. Messiah's sight, based upon what he saw. Messiah's seat, based upon the fact that he was said. And Messiah's speech, we're calling it the Messianic Manifesto. We begin this morning with Messiah's sight. We are told by Matthew, as the fifth chapter opens, that Jesus saw something. And it's not hard at all. Uh, for even the children in attendance this morning to see in that one verse what it is that Jesus saw. Jesus saw a multitude of people. What did Jesus see? He saw a multitude of people. He saw a large gathering of Jewish people coming after him. This is not a simple Incident Report. This is a deliberate historical report with rich prophetic meaning. The word seeing used here is common, but the plain meaning of the word is to perceive or to discern. Jesus perceives something. He discerns something. In this moment of time, and it triggered something in him when he saw what he saw. It triggered something within the Lord when he saw the multitude gathering unto him. He sees the multitude and he goes up into the mountain. And when he was set, his disciples come unto him, and he opens his mouth, and he teaches them. Something was triggered in the mind and the heart of the Lord Jesus when he saw this multitude coming after him. When he saw this multitude gathering unto him. What was it that was triggered? in the heart and the mind of the Lord Jesus. Well, in one of the most rich and compelling, early, significant Old Testament messianic prophecies, Jacob told his son Judah that his descendants would become the praise of his brothers, that Judah was designated... Genesis 49, as the Jewish tribe from which Messiah would come. The man called Shiloh in the prophecy, which means peace, would bear the scepter of heavenly authority. But I want you to see this morning with me again, though we've looked at that prophecy previously, I want you to see with me again this morning exactly what else that prophecy says. Genesis 49 and verse 10. Genesis 49, 10 says, the scepter, kingly rule, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh peace Come, and then note this phrase. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Unto the Messiah shall the gathering of the people be. And so before this moment in time, uh, we know that John the Baptizer, as the official forerunner of the Lord Jesus, is preaching, and crowds of people are coming and gathering, and they are coming unto John for the preaching of the message, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and they are responding, at least some of them responding uh, from the heart, uh, by entering into the waters of, uh, of uh, baptism, uh, confessing their sins in preparation for God's kingdom come. And then when John is placed in prison, Jesus then initiates preaching the same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he preaches that same message, and then he calls for some of his entourage, his disciples after him, and a number of other details as are filled in by Matthew, uh, then the Lord sees on this given day a multitude, a great multitude of people Uh, coming out after him, and he recognizes that it is time for messianic stuff. It's time for Messiah to reveal his platform, his manifesto right out of heaven. This details exactly for the Jewish nation uh, the, the requirement of God as represented From the lips of Messiah himself, under the banner of a messianic prophecy that says, Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. As the Lord saw a multitude of people coming to him that day, gathering unto him that day, he, based upon the sight of it, turns and walks up the slope, walks up to the hilltop, in order to get the perfect advantage for the sake of being able to speak to this crowd of gathering Jewish people. You may recall a few weeks ago that we said that John the Baptizer characterized the ministry of Messiah in the terms of cleansing, and in the terms of judging, and in the terms of gathering. Unto Messiah shall the gathering of the people be. And ultimately, if you chase that word gathering, it has to end, it has to end in obedience. And some of the modern translations of our text, Matthew chapter 5, speak of the idea of The multitude uh, uh, coming unto the Lord and that reality of of the prophecy being fulfilled unto him are the obedience of the people. Uh, And certainly there were obedient people within the crowd. But by and large, as we've been saying all along, he came unto his own and his own received him not. Nonetheless, John the Baptizer had characterized most recently the ministry of Messiah in the terms of cleansing, in the terms of judging, and in the terms of gathering his wheat into the barn. I see in 5.1 a sense of fulfillment as it relates to gathering. On this occasion, Jesus saw Jewish people Gathering unto Him. And that sight at that time invoked in Messiah's mind the prophecy of Scripture concerning Him. Messiah's sight. Jesus knew on that day, this is why I was born. I'm exactly where I need to be in the will of God. This is exactly the moment that has been created for me of God the Father. Here I am and I'm ready to speak, Jesus goes up onto the mountain. Now, the next word that we call your attention to in that first verse is the word set. And for that, I want to thank my seventh grade English teacher. Uh, my home gra- homeroom teacher in seventh grade uh, purposely embarrassed me one day before the class over my ignorance of the difference between uh, set and sit. I had said to one of my buddies, when we were kind of jostling back and forth uh, before class time, I said, sit down. And Mrs. Darby said to me, it is sit down, Timothy. And so I said, okay. (laughs) You're supposed to say sit down, not set down. But here in verse 1, we are told that Messiah was set. And if you look up the Greek words, they mean the Messiah sat down. So we will not fuss over set and sit particularly, but we will consider the cultural significance of and when he was set or when he had been sit down. Uh, the, uh, uh, The idea of set... Indicates in this verse more than sit. you with me this said in this verse indicates more than said he didn't just sit down though he did sit down. He was set down Mrs. Darby he was set down Mrs. Darby and the word set is right because it's speaking and emphasizing the idea of the Lord's posture. And the Lord's sense of preparation in this moment of time, posture and preparation to do something. It is not just recording uh, recording an incident where that the Lord Jesus uh, uh, you know, was uh, sitting down. Uh, it is telling us that the Lord was at a given point in time sat. Like, I have the thought when the lights are on and the microphone's on and the piano lit is up and, and, uh, and uh, the organ's being played before the, the service and I come to the back of the, uh, of the auditorium and I see a few heads, some of them bald, but that's good, and I, I see the heads and I, uh, I say to myself, okay, we're set, we're ready, we're prepared. And so Jesus, at a given point in time, uh, gets to the top of the mountain and then when, time-related, Uh, functionality, he was set. He's poised in a sitting manner. Now you've been told before and you should be told again that rabbis better pronounce rabbis but rabbis of that day sat down to teach. And the reason that rabbis sat down to teach was that the ancient practice of the rabbis was predicated upon the kingly routine among the nations of a leader taking his chair or his throne before officially interacting with people and certainly before issuing any kind of a decree. Communication from one seated was viewed as authoritative communication. And it was viewed as official communication. Now, I can appreciate that from the nature of my own calling and the way in which I view this piece of wood crafted by the hands of men. It's just wood. It's just really a, a a fancy desk. But it's more than just a hunk of wood, and it's more than just a fancy desk, because it has been indeed in my mind, and I know in most of yours, it has been sanctified in mind and heart as being something holy. This is not a lecture. This is not an educational lecture. This is a pulpit. And the difference between a lecture and a pulpit has to do with authority. Uh, One of the saddest realities of our day is that even when God's true people gather, oftentimes because of the weak commitment of pastors uh, today, uh, when God's people gather, so often what is said Uh, borders on the realm of opinion, and certainly uh, uh, illustration, and maybe some principle. But this pulpit is supposed to be uniquely dedicated and narrowly focused upon the word of the living God. What you hear from here ought to be the real deal. And it ought not be any man's opinion. It ought to be the very word of God. Well, that concept, too, kind of comes from this idea of nations and kings. And when a king who has an opinion on all kinds of things, from he doesn't like turkey, but he does like steak, whatever. uh, But uh, a king has all kinds of opinions. uh, But he didn't just walk around sharing those opinions all the time. Uh, He reserves a place He reserves a chair, he has a throne, and if he's going to meet somebody that is in his kingdom, he's going to meet them as he sits on the throne and then relate to them with him sitting on the throne. And then, of course, if he's going to issue an official decree, he certainly is going to be sitting on that throne when the decree is indeed communicated. Now, the cultural recognition of what we've just referenced uh, also has come into modern practice of education, legal, and religious. Uh, when a professor of a university rises to the top of department, he or she is called the chair of the department. When a judge officially communicates from the chair behind the judicial bench, what he says is considered to be uh, the application of the law. Uh, the business group leader is called the chairman of the board. And when a Catholic pope makes an official pronouncement, Paula, it is called "ec cathedra, meaning speech out from the chair. In fact, the word cathedral means building of the chair. Or the place of the chair, the place where the official communication is delivered. The Lord, deliberately sitting down on this occasion to communicate, underscores the officiality of this communication. And that invokes the whole idea of authority. Now, we said today that we were going to deal with the non red parts of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So let me just uh, take you to the end of the Messiah's Manifesto. And uh, look with me at 7, 28, 29, where you have uh, the ending of uh, the Messianic Manifesto. And then you have two uh, uh, additional uh, uh, expressions of, of, uh, uh, of commentary and uh, you have verse 28, And it came to pass when Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Now, I thought about today uh, uh, bringing uh, one of our men up and demonstrating for you uh, the meaning of, the plain meaning of the word astonished. Uh, uh, the verse says that the people were astonished at his doctrine. And the word astonished, in the original, means to be struck by a blow. <laughs> and so I thought, boy, that'd be a good illustration. Bring up some guy and say, just stand there, buddy. Pow! Zap you on the kazuli. and down you go! That is what it means to be struck by a blow. Well, when the people heard Jesus communicate officially, as it were, the king out of heaven, it's just like somebody smacked them in the face. They were astonished. And what did they say? They said, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The crowd was blown away because Jesus taught as one possessing full authority or divine authority or, as we learned last summer on family night, underived authority. Rabbinical communication commonly quoted other respectable scholars, just like I quote Spurgeon or MacArthur or somebody else. And the rabbis, rabbis of that day constantly beat the drum of tradition. But when Jesus spoke, he didn't quote anybody. When Jesus spoke, it was direct and authoritative. The crowd understood that he's not sharing his opinion. He's not making any suggestion. Jesus, in this moment of time, is telling it exactly as it actually is, period. And that brings us then to the third thing this morning. I call it Messiah's speech. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, doesn't that sound incidental? Well, Pastor Teal showed up at 10 o'clock, and after the singing and the scripture reading, then he opened his mouth and he preached, and then we went home at noon. Blah, 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 blah. does then it just sound incidental? Is it to be understood as incidental? I'm suggesting to you, and more than suggesting, I'm telling you this morning, it's not incidental. It is indeed historical. And more than historical, It is prophetical. What am I saying? I'm saying that when Matthew tells us that Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, verse 2, this is not a simple statement of the obvious. This is a statement alerting the reader to the prophetic witness operating at hand. Now, I want you to see that in another case, and yet the parallels between the case I'm going to show you and our text are just absolutely phenomenal. But turn with me uh, to the prophetic witness of Old Testament Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 3, Ezekiel chapter 3. And I'm going to begin reading in just a moment at verse 24. Ezekiel chapter 3 is where the prophet Ezekiel receives his commission to preach, to prophesy. And I'm interested in how the Spirit of God works with him in this moment of time, refining his call in prophetic ministry. Ezekiel 3.24, Then the Spirit entered into me, capital S, Spirit entered into me, and set me upon my feet, and spake with me, and said unto me, Go shut thyself within thine house. The Spirit of God enters into the man who is to prophesy. The Spirit of God sets him up for a moment of official communication as from right out of heaven. Verse 25. But thou, O Son of Man. Now, uh, Ed Brubaker knows, and a number of others of you know, from having read or studied Ezekiel, that Ezekiel is unique in the biblical record because he is repeatedly called by God the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. And those of you that have been studying the life of the Lord Jesus for a period of time know that Jesus himself refers to himself again and again and again in the New Testament as the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Son of Man, verse 25, Behold! They shall put upon thee, bands upon thee, and they shall bind thee with them, and thou shalt not go out among them. Ezekiel, you're not going to be free to just live your life the way you want to, because people are going to resist what you have to say from out of heaven. Verse 26, And I will make thy tongue cleave to the roof of thy mouth, that thou shalt be dumb, and thou shalt not be to them a reprover, For they are a rebellious house. Wow, I could, if I only had another hour this morning, and I do, but I'll use it otherwise. If I only had another hour besides that hour coming this morning, I'd use it to speak on verse 26. What a phenomenal truckload of information. First of all, uh, no chit-chat. Ezekiel's told, no chit-chat. Don't you dare give your voice to things that are just chit-chat among people. Keep yourself apart. So that when the moment comes and you're set, you deliver the goods. Furthermore, you're not going to be a reprover of the people. What does that mean? It means it's not your job to correctly, to personally correct the sins of others. It's not your job to personally correct the sins of others. Going around and saying, well, you did this, and 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 you did this. No, Ezekiel, you're not going to do that. Because this is a rebellious house. This is a rebellious nation. And if you started naming sins and going after people, you'd never end your work. You're supposed to stand up, tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. That's your job, Ezekiel. That's your job. Look at verse 27. But when I speak with thee, I will open thy mouth. And thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, He that heareth, let him hear, He that forbeareth, let him forbear, for they are a rebellious house. I'm simply saying that's a case of precedent that informs our understanding of the phrase in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, and Jesus. Yahweh of old, Jesus new, opens his own mouth, it's his to open, and speaks. And when he speaks, those that hear, hear. And those that forbear, or refuse, refuse. For Israel was in the Lord's day, as it was in Ezekiel's day, still a rebellious house. Now, could God have forced the people to listen? Sure. Did the Lord know that most of them would not listen? (laughs) Sure. Jesus' attitude in preaching when he opened his mouth is that those that hear, hear. And those that forbear and refuse are no surprise, for all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. And so this messianic manifesto must be understood as revealing two great and eternal significant things. First, it reveals the actual disposition of the king seated before the Jewish crowd gathered. This sermon reveals the righteousness of God as seated before them. Second, it reveals the great need of repentance by the Jewish nation, if indeed they are to be reflective of the actual citizenry of God's kingdom come to earth. So what is the Messianic Manifesto? It is a revelation of the disposition of the king. And it is a raising of God's standard of righteousness for all kingdom citizens. That's why Jesus, just a few verses beyond the introduction, will get to the heart of the matter when he addresses the crowd and says, Listen, accept your brand of righteousness exceed the righteousness that is seen commonly among religious men you will in no means enter into the kingdom of God it requires a standard of righteousness that you cannot humanly meet oh God right oh God right Oh, God! Right! It's all about the come. It's all about the come. Be one of those who come. And keep coming. It's the only path to the righteousness that God himself demands. Father thank you this morning for the clarity of these incidental comments at the beginning of this messianic manifesto. Help us in days to come should you tarry to be well prepared in heart to receive the truth of Christ as delivered on mountaintop that day. We thank and praise you this morning For this gathering, we thank and praise you for all who indeed have come. Not just come here, but come to you. For thou art God, and there is none else. How we thank you, how we praise you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May our better understanding of him as to the willingness of his heart and the work of the cross even be increased in our hearts and minds during this holiday season of the year for we ask this in jesus name and for his blessed sake amen